0: Hey, um, Philippians chapter 1, really you saw, uh, the, see the name of our series, The Next Five Years. So I want to start out this morning kind of with this idea is if I were to say to you, what would you like to see happen in your life the next five years? What would that look like? What would that look like? I know my wife and I, we've, we, there have been seasons where we sit down and plan goals. We don't do that every year. Uh, we, we try to get on the same um, page and and try to go in the same direction constantly. That's something we constantly have to refocus on. But I know many years we've set down goals and said, these are the things we want to accomplish. In fact, if you look uh, in the Old Testament, Tower of Babel, God says that man really can accomplish just about anything he sets his mind on, except for one thing. He can't fix his brokenness, right? He can't rescue himself. He can't save himself. He can't uh, uh, obtain righteousness on his own. But so this idea, many of us would think of things like this. Well, I want to pay off debt, right? Or uh, I want to get this uh, house. Or I'll, I want to remodel this, right? Um, or we, we have a 1953 home. And so uh, with a whole home that old, there's usually a lot of renovation. We have done just about everything you can think of multiple <laughs> times to that house. And so we're about to paint upstairs again. Uh, but you know, so we, we think about what what do we want to accomplish what are what are goals you set out? But I think when we think about that, I think we need to think about this picture of sanctification and so Paul's going to lay out this picture of sanctification for the Philippians, and I, I think we need to think about what that looks like in our lives. In other words, we should really be asking our our, our, our question is this: will li- will all, my life reflect more of Jesus over the next five years or over the next period of time in my life? What, what will my life look like when it comes to Jesus? Now understand that sanctification is a church word, right? But basically what it means is this idea that God is, he, he justifies you by grace through faith, the complete work of Jesus. When you accept it by faith, you get Jesus's righteousness. But then you're a child of God, right? But to live up to that status, takes time. In other words, there is a crucifying of our flesh daily. God gives us his spirit. Now we can be obedient to him before we couldn't. And so there's this working out. And some people think it's like this steady slope, okay? Like a uh, like this escalator, right? It's, it's not like that at all. In fact, many times it seems like three steps forward, five steps back. It's described to me kind of like this kind of nasty hairball that just kind of seems like it goes and goes and goes. And there's a little steadiness to it, but there's this back and forth, right? This working out. And so we're going to see some of these things uh, through this letter, but I also feel like I need to kind of introduce this letter to you that Paul wrote. So we're going to do a little backstory on that. Um, So this book was written to the church at Philippi, and obviously is where it gets its name, the Philippians. Uh, Philippian uh, book of Philippians, but it, it was a church, or I should say it was a city that was a Roman colony. It was really a, a colony that was built for retired soldiers, and it was known for their patriotic nationalism, okay? So in other words, if you wanted to see what a mini version of Rome would look like, you would look at this city. It had an amphitheater, it had all the, the benefits of the big city, but on a smaller scale, and this was, again, well known uh, throughout the Roman Empire, that Philippi was a cool place, if you will, to retire. I guess I've never thought about retiring, but I guess Florida is a popular place, right? Uh, so there's all, all other places that may be popular, but it's this idea that this is where they would go. Now, there's a couple people you're going to be introduced to in the letter. One is a guy named Timothy, which you guys may be familiar with. Another guy you may not be, uh, his name is epratitus okay? And he, he is a guy who is a a faithful servant, a co-laborer with Paul. Okay, and he's a guy who did several things for Paul during this time. One is he collected a financial gift to give to Paul to help him out because Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome. Okay, and so we see this. And then he also gives Paul an update on the church status in Philippi, and he expresses uh, their love from the church to him when he goes to visit Paul. And there's several reasons why Paul wrote this letter. One of those is this idea of to thank them for the gift, this kind gift uh, financially that it gave Paul to sustain him. Also, this idea of the update on his status, where he was at, what was going on in his life in prison, uh, what his circumstances were like, and then also really to, if you will, pastor them, to encourage them, to challenge them in their walk uh, with Christ. And really, you see several themes, but one overarching one we'll get to in just a moment. But it's this idea of the selflessness rooted in the gospel. So in other words, a dying to self, but rooted in the gospel. And then this idea of this hard work for the kingdom. In other words, we need to pour out our lives like a, a drink offering, if you will, for the kingdom. And also this idea of the crucial place of joy in the Christian life, and we're going to hear that from the very beginning. In fact, the word joy is mentioned or rejoice about 16 times in this letter, four times just in this opening chapter. So we're going to see this idea of joy and rejoice over and over again. But what we really see is the center. This, is, this letter is a, a little different in the sense that lots of Paul's letters are written to address uh, problems in the church. By the way, if you came here to find the perfect church, you came to the wrong place, right? Uh, we're all broken in here. We like to say it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. So we, we are broken, and I'll be the first one to admit I'm jacked up, and I need God's help, and I need God to fix me and to work these things out in my life. So if you came, you're in the wrong place. You'll mess everything up. So maybe, you know, whatever. You're, you're, you're part of the mess. So realize that. Um, so There's two texts that I want to highlight before we read our text and talk about the big idea this morning, and and it's this. One is at the end of this chapter, and it's verse 27. It says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then skip down to chapter 2. We're just going to kind of precursor to next week. But I want to highlight uh, 5 through 11. And it says this Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, whom, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And, empt- and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. To the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, what we see is Paul not writing necessarily to a particular problem or a particular issue, but he is really taking this, if you will, as the core of the text. And then if you imagine these little poems or vignettes packed around that, almost packing, kindling around a fire to light this, to understand the the core of the text is really this poem, a Mosaic poem. Um, It's this idea that God came in flesh and blood, Jesus Christ, and he poured out his life for me and for you. And he gave his life as a sacrificial, sacrificial blood sacrifice for us that we may be bought back, may be redeemed, and have peace with God. And so you see this letter to the Philippians address really this head-on idea of the human tendency toward discouragement and hopelessness. I don't know about you, but I can find myself hopeless and discouraged quickly. Can you? I can. Uh, There's things in life, there's tendencies in life that we have And we go back many times to those places. We get discouraged. But in Christ, who was in the very form of God, he emptied himself and went to the cross for our sake. An invincible hope is given to all Christians everywhere, whatever you're facing, without in any way downplaying the real adversity that afflicts us. The gospel gives us comfort and solace that no human circumstances can give. Whatever happens personally, politically, politically, Whatever happens economically God freely grants to those who trust in Jesus a righteousness that is not dependent on our performance or our obedience to Christ. For this reason we have ample cause to glorify God in Christ Jesus despite the raging storms around us. See, in fact, we get a unique window into Paul's heart in this letter. And what we see is that Paul really sees his life as a reenactment of Christ's story. His suffering, he over and over again brings in an example of Christ's suffering for us. And his awareness of Jesus' love and his presence gave, gives him incredible hope and humility at the same time. And it's also this picture that Jesus, he knows Jesus in such a deep, personal way that is absolutely transformative in his life. And so I hope that as you hear the text this morning, you'll be encouraged. Let's go ahead and read. We're going to read the entire chapter, Philippians chapter 1, and then we're going to kind of break this down verse by verse as much as possible. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, and the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, rather in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, calls to glory in Christ Jesus because of the coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. (laughs) This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, that from that from God, for it has been granted to you for, this, for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Father in heaven, thank you so much for our day. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. As we come and gather, God, let us realize that this is not... This building is not the church, okay? That we are the church. And everywhere we go, we are taking the life of Christ with us. We are taking the kingdom of God with us. God, we, our goal is to glorify you by advancing your kingdom through the Great Commission. God, help us to live like that. God, we were given an opportunity just in a few weeks, God, to be your hands and your feet. God, help our people to understand the great opportunity we have. And, God, that they would serve. God, help us to understand your word today. God, help us to understand what Paul is trying to communicate to us, God, through the inspired word of God. God, we love you. We thank you. God, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase. And do what only you can do, Father, and that's to eternally change hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have pencil and paper today, we're going to write down our big idea today. Our big idea is this. It is Paul's prayer and confidence that God will bring about a joy-filled life that is worthy of the gospel and the believers at Philippi. I want you to understand this idea of a joy-filled life, worthy to be called a child of his. So we see the very beginning, Paul writing this, and he's mentioning himself and Timothy as servants. What you notice right out the gate is this idea that Paul denotes himself. He He says, we're servants, okay? We're we're just bond servants, but you are saints. In other words, when he writes his letters, he writes all to the saints. Now, this is a misunderstanding in Scripture many times. He doesn't write to a saint. He writes to the saints. So if you're a believer, you're a saint, just like you're a priest, okay? So you're a saint and you're a priest. In other words, you are set apart by God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, And so you are a saint, and now you are given the responsibility to be a priest, to live out that faith where you live, work, and play, and are educated. So God has given you that. But we see Paul right out of the gate. He is understanding that his his responsibility is that of a servant. And then we see him talk about this idea of saint. And really when he's talking about this, he's not just talking individually. He's talking corporately. He's writing this letter to the church to the people not just to an individual. So when we think about this, think about corporately, really a big slice of sanctification pie is this. It is us learning to live in the gospel centered community, say. So understanding this, living learning to live with one another in the ins and outs of real community, guess what happens? it starts causing a little friction, right? And then what happens is, just like a a knife is sharpened on a stone, right? When the friction happens, there's a sharpening. As iron sharpens iron, one sharpens another. So Paul is emphasizing, understanding that a big part of us being sanctified in Christ Jesus is this idea of community. We need to learn to live with one another. I can tell you out of the last three or five weeks, I've learned that on a greater level, being around <laughs> students and leaders and kids, right? You're used to kind of your routine, you're used to doing things a certain way, and all of a sudden it's abruptly um, smashed into reminding little kids to make sure they take everything they need to the bathroom to get back and, right, and all this back and forth you forgot your name tag, you forgot your Bible, you forgot, okay, so it's all this back and forth, and what happens is it starts bringing up all those things in my life that I struggle with, patience, right, consistency, whatever it is, and it begins to shave off those things, much like marriage does, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, but it's this idea that understanding a big part of the sanctification process is this idea of living in gospel-centered community. That's why One of our core values here at Spotswood at Ladysmith is this idea of authentic community. See, we believe we're wired for relationships. And so we believe that God didn't create us to be alone. In fact, when he created man, the one thing he said wasn't good after he created each thing. He said, this is good, this is very good, right? He said, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. I think Jono may have mentioned this last week, this idea that the enemy likes to isolate us. He likes to he likes to he likes it for us to be pulled away when when we mess up, right? And I said this probably several weeks before that. One of the greatest um, ideas, you understanding the gospel truly, is not when you're doing everything right. It's when you sin. It's when you mess up. Do you do you feel like you've got to do two or three weeks of really good stuff before you're right with God? Do you do you feel like you've got to miss a couple Sundays because you're not quite righteous enough to walk in the door? Are you kidding me? Right? No, you run and embrace the arms of Christ because he's the one, he's your righteousness. He's the one who's forgiven you. You can't obtain that. So understanding that this idea of community is a big deal. And then we go in to see verse one, he talks about overseers and deacons. Shepherds and servants play a role in the sanctification process. Part of that is the teaching. Teaching. We, we The difference, main difference between Uh, if you will, deacon and elder is this ability to teach or this um, quipping of being taught, okay? And so teaching God's Word is a part of that, but also following under the authority of Scripture, following under the authority of leaders is a big part of that, right? Um, And so understanding that as we serve the church, as we lead and grow in people, God uses that. He uses other believers to help in your sanctification process, both through community and through the leaders in the church. And then it goes on to say in verse two, for grace to you and peace from God. And so there's this understanding that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, we're saved by grace through faith. This is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. So in other words, God gives us his grace and the peace comes from the grace that is extended through the personal work of Jesus Christ. So now we're given grace and we receive peace. I can tell you back in 1992, I didn't come to Christ because I was scared to go to hell. Now, I would have went to hell without Christ. But the reason I came to Christ is because I had no peace in my life. I had no joy. I had no contentment. And so for the first time in my life, when I got down on my knees in the home I was buying and repented of my sins and asked God to forgive me from running from him for years, from a young teenage boy or even preteen, I knew what the answer was and I ran. And for the first time, he gave me peace. And my life was really upside down. I'll tell you, it was turmoil. It was hell on earth at that point. But God rescued me. He gave me peace that passes all understanding. So understanding, listen, sanctification starts and ends with grace. Okay? Sanctification starts and ends with grace. It starts with grace through humbling ourselves, and it extends through grace. God giving us the mercies of his grace throughout the process of living and becoming a child of his and being more and more like him. And then verses three through five, it talks about this idea. He says, and always in every prayer of mine, making all, making my prayer with joy because of the partnership in the gospel. Listen, from the first day until now. Now that text is full, it's really packed filled. Now the only way for you to really know and understand that is to go back to Acts chapter 16. Now, I encourage you as we're going through this series to go back and read chapter 16 of the book of Acts because what that does is it gives us a picture of the start of the church at Philippi, okay? And what it does is it really highlights three significant people, three significant individuals. There's a Macedonia call, and God, has, uh, God gives Paul visioned to go to Macedonia, which is made up of three regions, which one of those is Philippi, okay? And so he goes, but there's three individuals that get saved, and what's really cool about this is how diverse they are. In other words, they're they're diverse ethnically, they're diverse economically, they're diverse spiritually, if you will, and they're even diverse in how they're reached, okay? So let me start with the first one. The first one is a, a lady named Lydia, okay? And they, they, they found her down near uh, the river at a prayer mirror. She was a god but she was not born again. And so she was an Asian lady. She was wealthy. She owned a company. She was Godfearer, god And how they ministered to her was literally giving her the, the gospel. Paul and Timothy gave her the gospel, and she received and had faith. She was born again. And then we see another individual, not, not shortly after that, it was a girl. It was a slave girl. She was most likely a native Greek. She was most likely a poor individual because she was being used as a slave. She was demon-possessed, so her life was in turmoil. And what happened was the act of delivering him or delivering her from demon possession. So there was an act or a deed in her life. That's how she came to faith in Christ. And then the last one was this idea of jailer. What happened was Paul got imprisoned. They began to sing hymns. And a great earthquake God sent and broke open the jail, and the jailer was going to kill himself. And, and Paul cried out and said, don't do that. We're all here. And what happened was uh, God gave the jailer faith. He believed, and he was rescued. And so we see a, a Roman here. He was a blue-collar guy. He was probably a very practical guy because he was a soldier, right? But he was, saw the example of Paul praising even in the middle of the suffering. And through God's deliverance, he was able to be saved. And what this shows us and shows me is that the gospel is for all. There's no partiality of the gospel. It isn't for a certain sect. It isn't just for Americans. It isn't just for the wealthy. It isn't just for the poor. It's for everyone. No matter what cultural background, what skin color you have, the gospel is for all. And so we see this the basis of the church at Philippa, and this should be true of our church and all churches. Now, obviously, a church is going to be made up of, most likely, the culture around them, right? But we, we need to understand that every nook and cranny of Caroline County and the surrounding areas, we need to go after. And our church should be filled with people of all diverse backgrounds, skin colors, culturally. And when we do that and we, we strive to be like the kingdom of God, which is, by the way, There's not going to be segregation or little departments where there's American Christians here and African here and and Asian here. It's going to be all the body of Christ. It says, from every tongue and tribe and nation, crying out to Lord Jesus, praising him, worshiping him. And so we're going to see this picture of the gospel when we get to heaven one day. And then it goes on to talk about in verse verse 6, it says this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Now, this is both individually and corporately. See, sanctification means dying. To, I'm sorry. The object, I'm sorry, let me back up for a second. The object of Paul's prayer is the total sanctification of the Philippians. This is his prayer. He believes that God's going to start this good work. He's going to finish it in him and them. So understanding this, one of the things I love about this letter is this, Paul's tone in this letter is so different than many of his other letters. It is just this overwhelming, from the very beginning, you, you sense this fatherly love, this, this caring for the people of Philippi, this overwhelming affection for them. He, he wants to see them live out this life that God's called for them to live, and he does it with He doesn't do it with discouragement. He doesn't do it with correction. He doesn't do it with telling them what they're not. You know what he does it? He does it with words that are saying, hey, I believe in you. I I believe that God has set you apart. I believe that God has credible plans, and and this is what it looks like. And so he encourages them. By the way, most of us already know what we're not, don't we? Don't most of us already know what we're not? We need to know what we can be. And in Christ Jesus, you can be these things. And it's not, it's not the, the idea of, like, confess it and, and, and name it and claim it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that God's Spirit indwells you, and because of that, you can now live a life that is worthy to be called a child of God. You have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit and through His grace and mercy to live out this life And so then we see this idea of how in his imprisonment, he was able to defend and confirm the gospel. This idea of understanding that there's a cost and work to the gospel. In other words, sanctification means dying to self. Sanctification means dying to self. The understanding that Paul had to die to self. In other words, Paul, in no way, shape, or form, Ever viewed himself as a victim. I want you to think about that. Paul did not view himself as a victim, but he trusted our sovereign father to use all things for his glory and his good, right? For his glory and for our good. That's what Paul did. He didn't, he didn't for once feel sorry for himself. He didn't go in a corner, and I'm, I'm sure there were times where he probably cried. He probably wept. I'm sure there were times of depression. But what you see in his writings is this idea of understanding that God is in control. He's sovereign. And he's bringing about all these things that happen in his life for God's glory and for his good. I don't know about you, but I've always learned more through hard times than I have good times, easy times. How about you? I mean, I've always learned during hard times. It's, I can tell you this, that I played sports for a long time. I, I don't know how many countless games I played in the innings and quarters or whatever. I played pretty much from the time I was seven years old, uh, football, baseball, and basketball. And then I didn't stop until I was about 24 years old, okay? Because I played a year after college. I played in some kind of league that was played up and down the East Coast, right? And I can tell you this. I usually never learn good lessons when I won. I always learned good lessons when I lost. Why? Because I would find out what I was doing wrong to fix it. Right? And so now there's great thrill in winning. Don't get me wrong. I always went out to win. But this idea of understanding that God uses these things in our life that are failures, that uh, we, we land flat on our face. Even times where maybe we didn't do anything wrong, but God is using the storm in our lives. So let, me, let me read to you Uh, The book of James and what it has to say about this says this: Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Think about that for a second. Now, how can we count it joy when we fall into trials? I don't like trials. I want to run from them. I don't want to be near them. But, but Christ Jesus, through Paul, through James, and even you go into Second uh, Peter, you see where God uses trials in our lives, both trials of correction and trials of perfection. Trials of correction are things that we screwed up, right? Our sin, we're messed up, and it's like a child that needs to be corrected. And then trials of perfection are these ideas that God uses in our life, that maybe we didn't do anything to bring about, but God uses these things to begin to perfect us in our lives. So he says in verse 9 that love may abound in knowledge and discernment. I kind of skipped those verses and went back down, so I have to go back up. Love may abound with knowledge and discernment. And then he goes down in verse uh, 10 and 11. He has this idea of, of what he is saying to pray over these individuals or this church. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So I want you to think about this, that love may abound with knowledge and discernment. So 1 Corinthians 13 says this, love is patient, Love is kind. Um, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always hopes, persevere. Love never fails, right? Now, we know God is love, and because God is love, any fear that we have should be cast away. Understanding that God did not come to condemn the world, but came to save the world through Jesus Christ. But Listen. This is what I know to be true. Love, or my understanding of love, has grown over the years. I've been married, coming up on 22 years, okay? Now, my love that I thought that I had for Michelle almost 22 years ago is completely different. Now, I would say it's sweeter and stronger. And it's not because we got it all figured out. And it's not because we still don't fight and argue or disagree. It's because my understanding of love is different, and what Paul is trying to say here to us—that this understanding of love of knowledge and discernment—in other words, this. When I do weddings all the time, I say to our, our, the people that I marry, I'm saying people don't fall out of love; people fall out of repentance. Okay, and I believe that what's Paul's saying here about the church? If we're going to have this, if in verse 27 this unified, this one of mind and one of spirit. We've got to practice the gospel with each other, and we need to understand love on a different level of knowledge and discernment, that love is much deeper than a feeling or emotions. Those come and go all the time, guys. They're like mountains. They're just going to go up and down. They're like clouds that blow in and blow out, okay? It's going to happen, right? It's just the way it is. We, if we made decisions, uh, if we made decisions on emotions, most of us would probably be diagnosed with some mental disorder, okay? I'm just telling you. They come and go all the time. I always say follow, uh, feelings are great followers or terrible leaders, okay? So understanding what Paul is trying to say to us here is that, that love may abound with knowledge and discernment. And understanding that sanctification means your words, listen, your words and your actions to look like Jesus, your words and your actions should look like Jesus. So this understanding that when Jesus was in the garden, his body, his man, the man fully man, fully God, his man's side was saying, I wish this cup could pass. But what does he say? Now my will, Father, your will be done. This is what I know. God gave us emotions, and he gave them for a reason, but we can't be dictated by them. We have to trust the Word of God and the Spirit of God, even our own selves and our own emotions. So then we go see Paul going into the first half of this chapter is just really this idea of the prayer, and then this latter half I've got to wrap up really quick is this idea of Paul in prison. And he says, verse 12, he says, What happened to me advanced the God, uh, gospel. Paul did not view himself, as I said earlier, as a victim, but trusted our sovereign Father to use all things for his glory and our good. In James 1, we talked about that. In fact, Romans eight twenty says 8.28 says that all things work for those who are called according to his purpose for our, his glory and our good. And then verse 13, it says this: even the imperial guards, in other words, even the people that were that were watching Paul in this prison. It had, the gospel had spread, the knowledge of the gospel had spread all through thousands of soldiers' lives because he was imprisoned and he was not ashamed of the gospel. And then he even says those people that were watching him from the outside, these believers, they became more bold to speak the word without fear. I don't know about you, but I've seen people and they have their boldness, whatever it may be. Maybe it's a, you know, a leap of action. And there's been times where I've been really stupid and I jump off like cliffs into the water or something like that. But you know, there's there's that action of the first guy going right, and then the next person it, it's a little easier, right? And, and all of a sudden, it takes like a wildfire. Well, Paul is saying this idea that because of my boldness and my, and my stick-to-itiveness and my tenacity, for the sake of the gospel, even in prison, it has lit a fire under those who are around us, speaking more boldly. And this verses 15 through 18 it says really this idea of Paul's priority in life, listen, is that the gospel be proclaimed. That God's kingdom be advanced. Because he says it doesn't matter the motivation to him. It doesn't matter. Some people are doing out of selfish ambition and for financial gain, try to embarrass him because he was in prison and trying to step up, if you will, and take over certain territories for the gospel. And Paul said, those things don't even matter to me. All that matters is the gospel be proclaimed. Now, the gospel... Not, not a war, ver, ver, uh, version of the gospel as we've seen um, in Galatians, but this, this idea of Jesus plus nothing, right? And so understanding that when the gospels were claimed, that's the only thing that mattered to Paul. It should be the only thing that matters to us because the kingdom of God must be advanced and it will be advanced. It cannot be stopped. God will use you, he will use I, myself, or he will use other people if we choose not to step up. But God's kingdom will be advanced, and he's inviting us to be a part of it. And then to, to finish out the chapter, Paul talks about this idea that he struggles between living and dying. And really what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, life is the Messiah. So to die is gain, but to live means to create more Jesus communities, which is better for all others. So in other words, we should be about the kingdom. We should be about making disciples, planning communities. And when God takes us home, he takes us home, okay? And and listen, we we can't even fathom what that's going to be like. I think about just the joys in life right now, right? I think about maybe getting on a kayak and paddling down the Rappahannock and fishing. Or I think about climbing up in a tree in a cold this fall morning, right, and seeing nature wake up, or maybe having a a great hot breakfast and sharing a cup of coffee with my wife. But I think about all this world, okay, or maybe spending time with my girls and and praying with them at night, but then you think about all this world is tainted by sin, and one day we're going to get to be with Jesus forever in a place that resembles a perfect creation, because guess what? It is going to be perfect. It's going to go back to the garden, this beautiful picture of God's creation without sin, without death, without disease, without any mourning or sickness, no more tears. And God will be our God and we will be his people. And that's what God is calling us ultimately to. So I want to leave you with this big question this morning. It's this. What in your life right now does not reflect Jesus? What in your life right now does not reflect Jesus? Now, listen, we're all here. We're all broken. And I think if we're honest, we could probably list off a dozen or more places. But I can tell you that there's seasons where God works and moves in our lives. And there's times where he works. But do you know deep down in your heart, in your soul, you guys can come on up. You know deep down in your heart and soul there are certain things that God is trying to work through in your life today. What are those things? Maybe it's just one thing that you're really struggling with that you know deep down that God is wanting to root out. He's wanting to bring to the light. He's wanting to, you to surrender and crucify on a deeper level. As Paul says, to be worthy to be called a child of His. You're, you're already righteous in the sight through the work of Jesus. Now we're, we're a king. We were, we were taken off the streets. We were street kids and given this, this kingdom. We were given all the privileges and rights and heirs of the kingdom and now we're to live up to that. What does that look like? We're going to stand in just a moment. There's going to be a time for invitation. You can have someone here you can pray with. You can be encouraged by. You can, if you want to know more what it looks like to become a, a follower of Jesus, we'll be here. If you want to get baptized, uh, we will talk to you about what that looks like anything or maybe just the altar to pray now we want to create a place where we can just be okay to come up and just spend time with jesus it's not awkward this is a place as if anywhere you should feel safe and comfortable it should be here because we're people of like-minded understanding we're all messed up we all need a savior jesus and we bring our brokenness to him and let him fix that in us we stand Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, that, God, that we um, are saved by grace through faith. But, God, you're calling us to live a life that is set apart, a life that looks different than this world, that looks like your son Jesus, um, that um, is really one that is emptying ourselves. We, we humble ourselves just as Jesus stepped out of heaven. God, we're to step out of our comfort zone. We're to live more like your son and die to self. God, we need you. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do, and that's our eternally changed hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.